Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Mark Gregory Robson. He's a distinguished professor and an extension specialist of plant biology, uh, faculty director at Rutgers University. So we're going to talk about his work with uh, crops and people and uh, what it means to be an extension specialist. So, Mark, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it sounds like a weird name. Why do they call um, people that do what you do extension specialists? What are you extending? That's, That's a wonderful question. And, you know, it goes back to the time of President Lincoln. So uh, the land-grant system was formed in 1864. As President Lincoln tried to knit the country back together again, there was the idea with uh, him and Senator Justin Morrell from Vermont to have a uh, public land-grant education system where they would teach uh, everyday folks. You know, up until that point, the educational system was really for the very wealthy or people that were going into uh, religious work, the clergy. And they decided the common person should have an access to a public education. And so they taught mechanical arts, which we now know as engineering, agricultural production, military science, and things like that. And so it goes back to those early days when each of the states that were part of the union at the time had a public land-grant school here at Rutgers, New Jersey, where the land-grant college in New Jersey In New York, it's Cornell. So you have to kind of guess what a Rutgers and a Cornell is. Other places, it's a little easier. In Iowa, it's Iowa State. In uh, places uh, like North Carolina, it's North Carolina State. So historically, each state has at least one land-grant institution. So after they put the land-grant system in place in the mid-1800s, they realized in the early 1900s that all of this good work that was taking place in the state land grant schools and the agricultural experiment stations was staying there. It needed to go out and be extended. So it's a very literal use of the term. And so faculty who, you know, there are faculty who teach, faculty do research, and faculty who do extension. So someone like me does a little bit of all three. So I take the science that I do and I extend it into the, in our case, the farm community in New Jersey, of course, is a very urbanized state, so urban residents as well. So that's what the word extension means. It literally means to extend the research that took place at the public land-grant institution out into the public. So we like to say, for instance, at Rutgers, we have uh, 9 million students because we have a population of about 9 million people here in New Jersey. Yeah, and from uh, going, well, I'm from New York. I haven't been there in a while, but going through New Jersey, the northwest part of New Jersey, like Hunterdon County and all that seems to be pretty rural. I mean, is there a lot of uh, farming activity there or is it just confined to the areas that are actually more urban in New Jersey? No, that's a wonderful point. So New Jersey still has about one fifth of its land mass is open space and still in agriculture. So the majority of the agriculture takes place from Trenton South, so the southern half of the state. 
And then, as you point out, in Hunterton and Warren and Sussex County, it's still quite rural as well. The northeastern corner, Hudson Union, uh, Passaic, are our most densely Essex are our most densely populated counties. So, southern New Jersey still has lots of active agriculture. We have about ten thousand farms still in New Jersey, and the majority of them are in the southern part of the state. But yes, the northwestern part of the state also has quite a bit of agricultural production. Okay. So what are some of the uh, the main projects you're working on? You know, the interesting, uh, I don't know, things that you're working on that are novel or, you know, that are solving tough problems right now, maybe not run-of-the-mill stuff, but, you know, unusual things. So New Jersey is an interesting place. You know, the um, when the New Jersey Agricultural Experiment Station was put in place at Rutgers in the 1860s, it was uh, put in place, and the first director was Dr. George Hamill Cook. And Dr. Cook wrote in the 1860s about how New Jersey is really the ideal place to have agriculture, the garden state, because it's situated between the markets in Boston and Washington, specifically between New York City and Philadelphia. So, you know, it's a great place because there are markets. You have to grow things that uh, you can sell to uh, large urban centers. And even in the 1860s, that was recognized. So New Jersey has always been a specialty Crop place. We grow lots of fruits and vegetables, about 58 different kinds of fruits and vegetables, because we have this market. We have a lot of farm-to-table operations, farmers markets in, in urban and peri-urban communities. Um, so, you know, we're not growing, uh, you know, thousands of acres of corn like you do in Nebraska or soybeans like you have in Indiana. We're growing things that people can consume and eat directly. Uh, so that, that presents some interesting opportunities. The cost of production is significantly higher in a state like New Jersey than some place in the Southwest or the, or the heartland in the Midwest. So some of the problems that we work on because of that are ways to improve production for farmers. And we have what we call precision agriculture. We still have lots of people that have greenhouses. The value of nursery crops in, in New Jersey is very, very high. Um, you know, people buy ornamental crops. Uh, since we have all these folks uh, in such an urban uh, space, they have yards and these yards, they have shrubbery and they have bedding plants. This is an opportunity for our farmers to produce those crops and buy them locally. Uh, for mm. many years, we pushed, you know, buy local Jersey fresh products and, and other states have the same kind of program. So we grow things that people consume directly as opposed to large agronomic crops like we grow in the Midwest. And also because we're farming in a uh, highly, uh, you know, high value, uh, high land value area, of course, our farmers have pressure to, uh, you know, to sell it for development. And so one of the things that we've seen over the last few years is New Jersey's had an aggressive farmland preservation program. Farmers sell their development rights to the state so that it will remain in perpetuity as agricultural land. Now, with that in place, it's our job to work with the farmers to make sure they can get, you know, grow crops that are high value, high production. And, you know, you can preserve farmland, but you have to preserve farmers too, Rich. And that's really part of the challenge. The other thing is when you have... Well, one quick second. Yeah. When you when you said preserve farmers, not just farmland, you know, so economically, meaning help make it viable for them to produce or to be able to sell enough that they can again be profitable. And Absolutely. So so what's one of the ways that you do that? Well, you do direct marketing. So we have lots of farmers markets. We have lots of places 
that are pick your own farms, you know, where farmers come in agritourism. So it's a family event. On the weekend, you take your kids and you go and you pick strawberries, you pick apples and the experience for the family and for your children. So you say, well, that's pretty straightforward. Well, actually, it's not. There are certain management things you have to have in place. We help advise the farmers, make sure you have adequate insurance, make sure that you've thought about, you know, are, do you, are you really set up? Do you have the infrastructure in your operation to accommodate maybe, you know, dozens and dozens of hopefully even more people that come in to pick strawberries, to pick pumpkins? It's a great experience unless someone gets hurt then, you know, there are serious liability ramifications. Mm. So we help farmers in that regard too. help them make choices to see if what they're doing is really going to have a good return on investment. What about non-traditional farming? You know, not just for food, but I don't know, poinsettias for Christmas. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. Absolutely. Or, uh, you know, plans to make the, the house or the garden or the office look nice. Exactly. And so that was my comment a minute ago about the fact we have lots of folks that grow bedding plants and greenhouse growers that grow, you know, everything from petunias and marigolds to hanging baskets because we have 9 million folks in New Jersey and many of them are in urban and suburban areas where they have large lawns. New Jersey has, our New Jersey Agricultural Experiment Station has one of the largest turf breeding programs in the country. The turf grass you see on the major uh, uh, baseball and football stadiums is actually bred and developed here in New Jersey. The lawns that you see, uh, the, the turf industry alone in New Jersey is half a billion dollars. So, it, you know, it's a significant amount of, uh, of you know, jobs and opportunities for people. But those turf grass varieties are bred here at Rutgers. Yeah, so you have to know what you can do well. We're not going to launch a big corn program here in New Jersey, but we can grow turf grass, bedding plants. Some of the first high efficiency, meaning you know, energy efficient greenhouses were actually uh, developed here. Professor William Roberts developed the double poly uh, greenhouse where they have an inflatable greenhouse. And that wasn't a Dutch structure, glass greenhouse that had been used since uh, the 1850s in England. But this double poly greenhouse was actually developed at Rutgers by Bill Roberts. And that the, the plastic greenhouses you see all over the country, the idea and the prototypes were developed here. Why? Because we could, hmm. we could grow those things here a long time ago and other people couldn't because we had the market for it. Yeah, that's pretty neat. So what are some of the trends... Um, of things that are now becoming more popular to grow and which things are maybe fading out? So it's exciting. You know, one of the things that we've been involved in, and I have two graduate students right now who are working uh, this really uh, controlled environment agriculture. Of uh, There's a large place up in Newark called Aero Farms. And it's a combination of, you know, they've been on the front of the New York Times magazine and several business magazines. 
So you take urban spaces, this one, the Aero Farms in particular was an old steel mill. And, you know, they, for, there was a tax incentives and opportunity to hire local people. So you have a labor force and to have this steer, uh, this tiered stacked microgreens, which are very valuable, you know, salad greens. And so they are with LED lights and very, what we call precision agriculture environment that control the environment very carefully using hydroponic systems. They're growing all these microgreens, this high-end salad materials. And mm-hmm. they've gotten uh, contracts with like large airlines that uh, you know serve the New York area, uh, in New Jersey and New York, so that the catering product, the products for their catering for the airline meals uh, include their products. And you can also buy them in you know the a better uh, grocery stores. So that was something you know you wouldn't necessarily have the market for that in in the middle of the of the heartland, but you do mm-hmm. here in the Northeast. The other thing that we have an increase in is organic agriculture. There are lots of people in an urban area like New Jersey who are willing to uh, pay a premium for organically grown products. But organically grown products require a lot more strategy. You know, you have to be smarter than the bugs and smarter than the diseases. So we have faculty at the experiment station who work on uh, you know everything from uh, biological control to natural products. We have a large basil breeding program. Basil is a very high value crop. And Dr. Jim Simon here at the Experiment Station has a fleet of graduate students working on this high-end basil that is resistant to several serious fungal diseases. And if the if the basil has natural immunity to the fungal disease, then of course you don't have to spray. You can grow it organically. Basil is a high value crop. The farmers can see a great ROI. Hmm, okay. Um, why? Uh, I mean, maybe silly question, but why is basil such a high value crop, for instance? Well, people like it uh, in salads and they like it as uh, something to mm. add to sauces and flavors. And again, you know, you have to have a large urban area. We have the market for people, you know, not everybody's going to go buy basil each week, but people that want basil want high quality basil. And, you know, hopefully, uh, if you want to make a nice, uh, you know, tomato and mozzarella salad. You want to garnish it with a little basil, and, and you don't want basil that's got a lot of pesticide on it. You want basil that was organically grown, and probably yeah. also tastes a lot better that way. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, what about uh, how important is it to help farmers uh, extend their season or try to grow year round if it's possible in New Jersey? So that's where the precision agriculture and the controlled environment agriculture come in. Uh, The challenge, of course, is we have a very fixed growing season. I mean, that's why California and Florida with much, you know, many more months that they can grow. In New Jersey, our farmers, the early vegetables, they get on the field in March and they can start to harvest some greens maybe in late April, early May. And by October, things are pretty much done. Uh, Whereas in Florida and California, of course, the growing season is almost all 12 months. Uh, You can move things into a greenhouse, into a controlled environment, but it becomes a lot more expensive with energy costs. So that's one of the other things that our agricultural economists do is sit down with farmers and talk about, okay, can you, with what you grow and how you market this and produce it, can you uh, spend the extra money on uh, in controlled environment? Obviously, you're growing poinsettias, you're inside. Uh, poinsettias are a greenhouse crop. We have lots of large uh, poinsettia growers in New Jersey, yet many of the poinsettias that you see in the big box stores this time of year Uh, actually come to us down from Canada. The Canadian government provides some uh, really good incentives for their farmers. You know, we always want all farmers, whether they're 
here in the U.S. or around the globe, we want farmers to to be successful and survive. The Canadian uh, farmers uh, have a an arrangement with their government to uh, support them by uh, having lower energy costs, so they can produce poinsettias in many cases significantly uh, cheaper than our New Jersey, uh, you know, New York poinsettia growers can do. So if you look at the country of origin, sometime uh, if you go to a large box store. Uh, you'll see that they might have come from Canada or from Mexico. You know, the poinsettia actually is a native of Mexico, and the word poinsettia has no botanical significance. Mr. Poinsett was the ambassador for whom the poinsettia was named because he brought it back, found it interesting. So not much, not much botany there. A little bit of politics, but you know, it's a popular, it's a popular plant. But a lot of them come from Canada or Mexico because it's less expensive to grow. Yeah. What what are some of the uh, I don't know some of the big issues that are uh, you know impacting small farmers that you work with? Is well, it the you know, cost of fertilizer or yeah? There's three things yeah, exactly. So uh, the first are anything related to uh, labor costs. Uh, New Jersey, of course, it's an expensive place to live and an expensive place for everyone to live. And so uh, you know there are uh, minimum wage is higher here uh, in New Jersey than other states. And, you know, some farm labor is very skilled. Other farm labor is, you know, a pretty entry level. And yet, you know, even the entry level workers, their salaries are significantly more than uh, other states. So labor costs are significant. The second one you just touched on with things like fertilizer. Fertilizers, pesticides are all petroleum-based products, as are the petroleum itself. So fuel costs for the tractors and equipment. Pesticides and fertilizers all are tied to the price of oil. And, you know, you just have to watch what's happened over the last 24 months. It was never inexpensive. Now it's very expensive. Uh, Diesel in particular is what's used on farms most of the time. And while there's a little bit of relief for gasoline prices for you and I at the pump, uh, people who are buying diesel fuel, whether it's over-the-road truckers or in our case, farmers are paying significantly more. The irrigation equipment, those pumps are fueled with diesel fuel. So it's very expensive for fuel costs, very expensive for labor costs. And then just the general cost of doing business in a place like New Jersey, there are, and in many cases, very good regulations, but there are lots of regulations that control what you can and can't do in an agricultural setting, like in many kinds of businesses. And those regulations have an associated cost with them. So farmers have to bear those costs, uh, the regulatory costs to be in business. And if you are a very small farmer or a medium-sized farmer even, you might not necessarily have the economies of scale where you can absorb those costs easily. And so um, that that is a challenge. There are about 10,300 farms or so in New Jersey. Surprisingly, Rich, that's a larger number than 10 years ago when they did the Census of Agriculture because there are many new smaller farms coming into business. We have a great program at Rutgers called, very cleverly now since RU, Rutgers University, the moniker is RU, Ready to Farm. And right now there's a class of about 20 young women and men who have different careers, but have decided to come from business. One or two came from social sciences. One or two haven't, you know, just finished their high school training in 
are trying to decide, but they've enrolled in our Are You Ready to Farm? because they want to start growing their own food. They want to start farming. They want to eventually do it on a commercial level, not just a hobby. But so there are new people entering the the farmscape. And uh, so we, we serve them as well. The average age of a farmer in the United States is something like 57 or 58 years of age. So the traditional farmer, whoever he or she is, is getting pretty old, but the uh, there's a whole new wave of uh, young women and men going into agriculture that are coming in from a different direction. I grew up on a farm. My yeah. uh, younger brother was a farmer until he passed away. So, you know, we sort of were born into it. That That is not uncommon. But now there's a whole new group of people who maybe they grew up in the Bronx or maybe they grew up in Philadelphia, but they want to farm. They don't want to be an accountant. They don't want to be a school teacher or a mechanic. And so this is a whole new group of people entering this workforce. Uh, something weird came to mind. It, I don't know, through compost or other methods, is it possible for a farm to generate methane and then in the future have tractors and things like that run off methane? You know, I'm thinking about landfills, you know, methane produced there. Is there a way to do the analog on a farm and then offset some of the energy inputs by doing it that way? So right now we're working on those sorts of things. I think where farmers have made some progress in the short term are two places. One is uh, solar. You know, lots of our farmers have, because there's been incentives to have uh, solar roofs on their farm buildings, their barns and things. There's a a turkey farmer in uh, Mercer County. It's a really interesting operation and he utilized some of the incentives. So he essentially generates almost all the electricity for his farming operation from the solar panels on the roofs of his turkey barns. Um, there's, uh, there's some farmers that are looking at wind energy in a couple of places. New Jersey is not necessarily ideal for this, but other places are looking at, you know, the opportunity to take advantage of geothermal energy. So yeah, the short answer is yes. Now the methane part's a little tricky. So as you know, cows have been identified, uh, with, by the climate change people as being a significant producer of methane. Cows are ruminants. They have four stomachs, unlike you and I who have one. And that one great big stomach, the rumen, is a giant fermentation vat. And so the methane that cows are exhausting uh, every day, all day, um, is a contributor to climate change. And then the question becomes, you know, how do you manage it? In a lecture I give in my uh, agroecology class, which is a senior colloquium I teach, um, I presented some just findings from other places, not done at Rutgers, but there's a whole team of researchers looking at... uh, you know, uh, selecting cows that uh, produce less methane, just, you know, sort of like from a breeding perspective, I think that's a ways off yet. The landfill methane recovery is, you know, still in its early stages. Here in New Jersey, we have a big uh, partnership the experiment station does with the Burling County Landfill, where we harvest the methane, it's stripped and cleaned. And then for a while, it was re- purposed into a large greenhouse operation that we had on site. Uh, There were some technical difficulties. I I think that technology will eventually get there. Uh, For the animals, one of the things that people do, you know, because animal waste is is such a concern as far as runoff and uh, nitrate, you know, nitrogen contamination and water supplies, farmers hold uh, large farms, uh, hold the, the animal waste in these lagoons, and I think there's going to be technology to to incorporate the methane that's off gas from these things, but it's it's not quite there yet. It's it, but it will happen, just not right yet. 
any particular projects that uh, you're working on that you think have like very high importance that could change how farming is done in New Jersey? So it's very generic. But, you know, no, that's 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 a good question. So one of the things that yeah, so I'm I'm trained. I grew up on a farm and trained first degree in agricultural science, the next to a plant science, and then I retooled and went back and got a, a second master's. And I I'm, I'm a board to this a toxicologist, so I look at the health and safety of what the farmers do on the farm and what it, how it impacts their health and safety and eventually everybody's. So I look at pest control strategies and pesticides. I, I guess if I had to describe myself, I'd say I was a pesticide toxicologist. And so one of the things that I think is more important than ever is to come up with pest control strategies that are going to really be environmentally friendly, but much more importantly, be human health friendly. We've done, a you know, over the years, uh, there were lots of work in integrated pest management, you know, carefully monitoring the pest populations. If there aren't pests there, why would you spray? You know, historically, going back to the 40s, right after the Second World War, there was all this chemistry that made its way into agriculture. And people sprayed by the calendar. Oh, it's Tuesday. I'm going to spray. Well, maybe the bug population was incredible that week and you should spray. Or maybe the conditions were such that there weren't any insects. Why would you spray? Why would you add that to the environment? Why would you spend the money? But the stuff was cheap and we weren't that environmentally savvy. Rachel Carson's book in 1962, Silent Spring, helped us realize we need to be much more on our game with this stuff. So in 2022, we work with the growers to come up with alternatives to chemical uh, pesticide use. Pesticides are still a part of the tool in the toolbox. You know, we just hit 8 billion people last month, according to the, you know, the United Nations. 4 billion of those 8 billion people have rice as the principal component of their diet. So while I don't work on rice in New Jersey, we don't grow any rice in New Jersey. I work on rice farms uh, throughout Southeast Asia with NIH-funded projects. Uh, we're trying to help those farmers reduce their pesticide burden for the, to improve you know, their environment and also to uh, reduce their own health risk. So I think for us in New Jersey, and especially my own interest, it's to uh, accurately assess the pest populations and then look for as many alternatives as you can have, including cultural, biological, you know, just taking advantage of the wonderful apps that are built on phones all over the, the world, you know, to, to monitor pest populations, to really refine when you apply a pesticide and how much you apply. You know, that, that's just such an extraordinary tool. One of the most striking things for me was a couple of years ago, I was in Liberia, which is a very poor country. And I was out really in the middle of nowhere. And I met some farmers who were had dry land rice and cassava. And, you know, the, the, the people lived in very modest situation. I said to the farmer, you know, how do you, how do you uh, get your information? And he pulls out his iPhone and shows me the current price of cassava and maize, corn, uh, in his area on his iPhone with an app. And you know, they, they, these are folks who, you know, don't have running water, who, who have a very limited exposure to, to electricity. But the guy had an app and he was he had current market prices in his part of the world for these crops. So I think the technology, Rich, whether it's at the most basic level or here in New Jersey, you know, at a more sophisticated level. I visited a farmer this summer and we're talking and he goes, wait a minute, Dr. Robson. And he pulls out his iPhone and taps it three times. 
I just thought he needed to take a call. And I said, no problem. He goes, I don't want you to think I'm being rude. He goes, I just changed. I was irrigating this field. And now I'm irrigating this field. And I just had to, you know, reprogram it so that they the shifted. He had all this micro-irrigation, trickle irrigation. I just had to switch it to the other field, which this is the kind of stuff that is high efficiency, uh, improves the ROI, reduces the environmental impact, and it's utilizing technology. Agriculture has always been one of the uh, early adapters of technology because it's always paid dividends for farmers. So that that's what I think is exciting is to monitor pests, to 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 really spray. If there's you know use a drone. If there's one little part of your hundred acre field that has an infestation, you spray that one little part of the field. That's a big deal. Mm. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. Well, very good. Well, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? And to get in touch if they, uh, if, you know, if you can help them if they have need for help, sure. or they just want to find out more about what's possible. Yeah, so, every, so in every state, we have an expander station. So, you know, if you're in New York, you would go on the Cornell website. If you are in Pennsylvania, the Penn State website, or here in New Jersey, the Rutgers website. So wherever you live, you can just go online and, and type in, you, you know, the uh, land-grant college and or land grant university now and it'll tell you who it is and then you would go to their agricultural experiment station and uh you can find out who the resources are we are you know publicly supported we are available to citizens you know their tax dollars support our work so i won't say we're available for free because you know you paid for it through your taxes but state experiment stations are there to serve the citizens in their different states and this is an opportunity for people to do that if you're particularly interested in what we do here in New Jersey, you go to Rutgers, the New Jersey Agricultural Experiment Station, and then you will see about 58 people that have uh, the same title as me, extension specialist in turf grass, extension specialist in animal husbandry, in food and nutrition. Now, we go way beyond just uh, working with farmers. We have extension faculty that work with uh, populations in very urban areas to help mom get the best bang for her buck with the supplemental nutrition programs, SNAP. In the old days, we called these things food stamp programs, but now it's it's more appropriately described as supplemental nutrition assistance programs. So whether you are trying to have the most efficient way to utilize your uh, supplemental help for better nutrition, or you want to go ahead and grow a better lawn in your yard, or you're someone who wants to start farming and grow an apple orchard, you can go to uh, the agricultural experiment station in your state and look at the list of specialists. If you're interested in what I do, it's just real easy. It's Robson, R-O-B-S-O-N, at Rutgers, R-U-T-G-E-R-S dot E-D-U. And I would be delighted to try and help you or more importantly, direct the folks to the folks that could help them. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for coming on the podcast. It's been a very good call and I appreciate it. Well, thank you for taking the time to visit. I uh, hope that it was useful and I appreciate your time as well. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.